1: I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Orlando, Florida. Located in Central Florida in the County of Orange, this city of just over 300,000 residents is home to more than a dozen theme parks. Its major claim to fame is that it is home to the world-famous Disney World, but that was not Orlando's first theme park. The first theme park opened in 1949 and was Gatorland, known as the Gator Capital of the World. The 110-acre park remains open and is home to more than 2,000 American alligators. There's no official documentation as to how Orlando received its name, but the most common stories are about a soldier named Orlando who was killed in the area during the Second Seminole War. It has also been said that the name came from a character in Shakespeare's play As You Like It. Due to its tourism, major events, and convention traffic, Orlando is one of the most visited cities in the United States. Visit Orlando recently announced that in 2022, 74 million visitors traveled to the area. Orlando City Seal uses the motto City Beautiful, first devised in 1908. It boasts more than 100 lakes and has approximately 233 days of sunshine each year. But in 1986, a dark and stormy pall was cast over the greater Orlando area as a silent and dangerous predator made female residents unsafe in their own homes. However, as unsuspecting as the victims were, so too was the criminal justice system, which was unknowingly on the cusp of forever changing.
2: In 1986 and into early 1987, in Southeast Orlando and unincorporated areas of Orange County, a series of violent rapes had residents on edge. A rapist broke into victims' homes, typically by a window, shut off all the lights and covered the victims' faces with bedding. Some victims reported a knife or razor was held to their necks while being violently raped. The intruder seemed to leave no clues as to his identity and typically took something from each victim's house. Because there were no men living in the victim's homes, it was believed that the rapists stalked the women before actually entering their homes in the middle of the night. The terror was palpable, and the rapists acted with impunity, putting the entire community in fear and placing significant pressure on the police to find this person. In the early morning hours of February 21st, 1987, 27-year-old Karen Monroe was awakened when somebody jumped on top of her and held what felt like a straight-edge razor to her neck. Her young daughters were in a bedroom nearby, and she was terrified that they were going to be harmed by this person. Years later, Karen described what the attack was like. In an article by journalist Aaron Rasmussen posted on InvestigationDiscovery.com, Karen said, I'm trying to talk to him to keep him occupied so he wouldn't go into the other room and hurt my girls in between fights, in between being choked, in between being smothered. Karen never saw her attacker, but could tell that he was armed with a sharp object, and to her this meant he was there to kill her.
1: The intruder, who Karen could only identify as a strong black male, held his hand over her mouth, told her to keep quiet, and threatened to kill her if she saw his face. Because Karen struggled to free herself, she suffered cuts on her face, neck, legs, and feet. The intruder raped Karen and stole her purse containing about $40, then left her house. It turned out that the girl's bedroom window was actually the point of entry. On the morning following the attack, a crime scene technician found the window open and the screen had been removed. Karen said that this window had been broken previously and was held together with wire from a coat hanger. A screen was found on the ground outside, and the crime scene technician was able to lift two fingerprints from the screen's frame. The fingerprints were run through the police database, but no matches were found. And Karen's was not the first attack. The serial rapist had been terrorizing the Orange County, Florida area for nearly a year. A little over a week after Karen's attack... Orlando Sentinel journalist, Prakash Gandhi, reported that police responded to a call of a man looking into a bedroom window in the South Curry Ford Road area at about 2.30 a.m. before getting into a car and driving away. This was near Karen Monroe's home.
2: According to WESH2 reporter Greg Fox, police who had been staking out local neighborhoods spotted the vehicle and attempted to pull it over. The suspect fled, but was caught when he crashed his car into a telephone pole. The driver was arrested and identified as 23-year-old Tommy Lee Andrews. In his car, police found miscellaneous items that they hoped were items taken from previous attacks. And Kath, I tried to find out what these were, and I found nothing that listed whether it was tokens or purses or whatever.
1: Don't you hate when you read a newspaper article and you have more questions than when you started?
2: (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Police believed the only way to convict the assailant would be to connect him to the possessions he stole from each individual victim because any victim who caught a glimpse of the suspect only saw him for brief moments and were unable to fully identify him. However, being able to prove that these personal items were taken during or after the commission of a rape on a specific date would be challenging and probably not sufficient to lead to a rape conviction. The Orlando Sentinel reported that in the early morning of his arrest, One victim identified Andrews in a photographic lineup, saying that Andrews broke into her house and raped her five weeks before Karen Monroe was raped. And Kath, it was reported differently in different newspapers. It seemed that the prevalent storyline was that only one person actually saw Andrews, and that was his first victim. However, in this article, it says that there was actually a second woman who was able to identify him in a photographic lineup, and that was never expounded on. It was the only article I read where it said that two victims saw their rapist.
1: Again, reading a newspaper article and having more questions than when you started.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That might be a theme here. However, as we've talked about, eyewitness identification is notoriously rife with mistakes, particularly cross-racial identification. When he was arrested, Andrew's fingerprints were taken and his blood was drawn to determine his blood type. Semen was collected from many of the crime scenes and that was what they could use to determine the blood type of the rapist. Andrews had type O blood, which is the most common blood type, a type consistent with the semen collected in the Karen
1: Monroe case. The first break came in the case when the fingerprints found on Karen Monroe's window screen matched Andrews' thumb and index finger. But because Karen never saw her perpetrator, prosecutors were not confident they could get a conviction. Karen said she would be able to recognize his voice, but prosecutors wanted something stronger. Even though Andrews' blood type was consistent with the blood type found in the semen, analysts determined that the semen could have belonged to 65% of America's male population. Prosecutors needed to connect Andrews to the crime scene with more conclusive evidence. 23-year-old Tommy Lee Andrews was charged with attempted murder, sexual battery, kidnapping, and burglary with assault. He was suspected of as many as 13 rapes in the past few months, but possibly as many as 22 in total. He was only charged with two at this point. According to reporter Greg Fox of WESH2 News, Tim Barry and Jeff Ashton were the two prosecutors from the state attorney's office working the rape cases. Both were very aware of the weaknesses of their cases and at the same time, aware of the pressure to get the predator off the streets. During the workup of the case, Jeff Ashton remembered a news report he'd seen in the year prior about an English geneticist who helped the police catch a killer. Now, Kath, we've talked about this before probably a couple months ago, I'm guessing. Do you remember? What was the case that we talked about this in?
2: I believe it was the Kirk Noble Bloodworth case, who was the first American prisoner to be
1: exonerated from death row using DNA. Okay, I think you're right. So the English case involved two 15-year-old girls who were raped and murdered three years apart in a town in England. And Joseph Wombau wrote a book on it called The Blooding, which again, even though we're giving you the end of the story, it's a great book and you should totally read it. It's so good. Anyway, there was a gentleman, Sir Alec Jeffries, who I'm assuming was knighted after all this happened, but that's just an assumption. And he was working at the University of Leicester. He was responsible for inventing DNA extraction techniques. And he did this while doing research on inherited markers for genetic diseases. He also demonstrated that it was possible to obtain DNA profiles from old cells. And he also was able to separate semen cells from vaginal wall cells. He did all this kind of stuff. So anyway, Jeffries discovered that the DNA examiner could establish patterns in unknown DNA. And he realized that variations in the DNA could establish identity. So he and two other guys, I had to look up their names to remind myself, but one was Peter Gill and one was Dave Werritt, were used by the police in England to help identify the murderer of these two girls. And Kath, I'm sure you remember this. They asked an entire town, like 5,000 men, to donate blood samples. Yes. And who was the killer in the story? They remember? No, no, no. He had a great name. It was Colin Pitchfork, who just. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he sounds like a killer, but I think he was a baker, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, something like that.
1: I can't remember how they got his blood. Do you remember?
2: Well, all of the males voluntarily submitted DNA, including Colin Pitchfork, or so the police thought. Remember, there was somebody who they were in a pub one afternoon that's just a right. few days afterwards, yep. and they heard somebody bragging about the fact that they'd gotten somebody else to submit DNA on their behalf. That's right. That led them to call him
1: Pitchfork. When
2: they tested his actual DNA, it was a spot on match.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the prosecutor, Jeff Ashton, remembered reading about this English case. Then he saw an advertisement in a magazine that really got the wheels turning.
2: It was an ad for Life Codes, a laboratory that specialized in paternity tests. So probably back in the day of Maury Povich, who's the baby daddy, right. <laughs> they probably use life codes. <laughs> the title of the ad was, he's wearing his daddy's jeans, jeans spelled G-E-N-E-S, and it had a drawing of a baby. The ad also said, thanks to a unique cost-competitive DNA-based test. And Kath, how much was cost-competitive back then? I want to say it was just over $1,000. Wow. Yeah. We've taken the question mark out of, Who is this child's father?
1: (laughs) It's a little sad when you have that question, but hey, whatever, you know, to each his own. It happens. (laughs) It happens. Now you can be sure with an average probability
2: of 99.9%. The ad continued with, when there's a match of these DNA segments, the visual proof is so conclusive that it will generally put questions of paternity beyond dispute. All it takes is a few milliliters of blood from mother, child, and putative father And LifeCodes' exclusive DNA print identification test will quickly, economically, and consistently establish paternity. And then Kath, in fine print that was italicized, it mentions that LifeCodes was the original developer of this DNA paternity testing. So after seeing this ad, prosecutor Jeff Ashton called LifeCodes and asked if the same kind of testing could be used to identify a criminal in a rape case. He was told that Life Codes had multiple people working on that exact possibility. Ashton shared this information with his colleague, Tim Berry, who was set to be the trial attorney for the first case prosecuted against Andrews. Tim Berry sent Life Codes samples of Andrews' blood that was taken after his arrest and evidence from six cases in which Andrews was a suspect. They wanted to see if the lab could match his blood with semen, blood, and body fluids found at the crime scenes. Dr. Michael Baird of Life Codes was able to make a positive match in two of the six cases, Karen Monroe and Nancy Hodge. Nancy Hodge was raped May 9, 1986. This was nine months before Karen Monroe was attacked and was believed to have been Andrew's first victim. According to results found by Life Codes, Andrews was beyond a doubt the source of semen in both of those rapes.
1: According to an article by Katherine Ramsland entitled All About the DNA Revolution, 25-year-old Nancy Hodge, who worked at Disney World, was attacked in her apartment and repeatedly raped, choked, and stabbed in the leg. The attacker then grabbed her purse and left. During the succeeding months, he raped many more women taking care to keep them from seeing him, and on his way out, he always took something that belonged to them. The difference between Karen's case and Nancy's case was that Nancy actually saw her attacker. She estimated it was only for about six seconds in a very high-stress situation in the dark, but she did see his face. Kath, do you remember, I think it was in the 90s, the Belmont Shore rapist? Do you remember that? No. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Oh my God, that was such a terrifying time. When I read about this case, it just made me remember how an entire community could be so scared. And at the time, we had a friend living in Belmont Shore, and I remember visiting her and she offered to walk me to my car. But I knew that the Belmont Shore rapist was attacking women in the middle of the night in their apartment. So I didn't want her to walk me to my car because I didn't want her to leave her apartment.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
1: it was such a scary time. And I remember reading an article about one of the women in the Belmont Shore case who woke up to a man crawling on their floor. Isn't that like scary? Oh, like just, I get I get chills just thinking about it. Totally. Yeah, I know. Complete goosebumps. It's terrifying.
2: You talked about your sister-in-law a couple of episodes ago, waking up and there was a man in her bedroom. Yeah. But one, her husband was there and two, he wasn't crawling
1: on the floor. Crawling on the floor.
2: It adds such a weird factor to it.
1: Yeah. Just so malevolent. Yeah. Yes, malevolent. Ex- Perfect Exactly. Word. I remember the Belmont Shore rapist was caught like 18 months later and connected with DNA. But they had arrested a young man, I want to say in his early 20s, as being the Belmont Shore rapist. And he was like a guy who worked for like the Parks and Rec's department. And he was the rapist? No, he was not the rapist. They arrested him as being the rapist. Then they found the real rapist and connected the real rapist with DNA. So the Park and Rec guy sued the city and got like $2 million. Wow. I just remember that was such a terrifying time. And there's so many bars in Belmont Shore, you know, which you and I used to frequent. quite a bit. (laughs) Exactly. But it's just scary what this can do to an entire community. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
2: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
1: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
2: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown.
1: Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com killerd killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's badlandsfoo dot com killer D. Due to the brief period that Nancy Hodge had seen her attacker, prosecutors believed her case was stronger and wanted to try it first. They intended to introduce the DNA evidence, even though there had never been DNA evidence presented in a United States court. But prosecutors wanted other evidence connecting Andrews to the crime scene because they weren't sure if the jury would accept the DNA testimony.
2: Before the start of the October 1987 trial for Nancy Hodge's rape, Judge Ron Powell held an evidentiary hearing to determine whether the DNA testimony could come into evidence. Because it had never been used, the evidence had to pass certain tests of acceptability within the scientific community. The judge's role is to act as a gatekeeper to prevent junk science when confronted with issues involving expertise beyond the average layperson. Each side was to present experts at the evidentiary hearing on the DNA evidence and the judge would decide whether it should be allowed to be brought before the jury. According to court records, there was an issue with what prior case law decisions the Florida judge needed to follow in order to determine whether new scientific evidence could be presented to the jury. One set of cases that every law school student knows. And you would know that because you're a lawyer. (laughs) Last week, you told me I'd just done Crime Law 101. (laughs) (laughs) So this one set of cases begins with Fry versus the United States. This was a 1923 case wherein the defendant took what was called a systolic blood pressure deception test, which I'm assuming the successor to this is probably called a polygraph. And this defendant passed but the judge would not allow the testimony and evidence. The court held that it was properly excluded because it did not gain the proper scientific recognition and acceptance in the psychological and physiological communities. Fry held that new evidence requires that the theory and method be accepted in the scientific community and then the technique was applied correctly. If so, the jury gets to hear it and decide whether they believe the facts. Now, later case law held the standard was not so strict and did not require general acceptance in the scientific community.
1: At the time of the hearing, the Florida Evidence Code said quote, If scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge will assist the trier of fact in understanding the evidence or determining a fact at issue, a witness qualified as an expert by knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education may testify about it in the form of an opinion. End quote. This was the approach based more on relevancy, and this was the standard that the judge applied during the evidentiary hearing in Andrew's case. Prosecutors needed to back up LifeCode's findings with expert opinions at the hearing regarding the scientific technique and how it applied to their case. Prosecutor Tim Berry called a well-respected MIT biologist, Dr. David Hausman. They also called two forensic scientists from LifeCodes, one being Dr. Alan Guisti and the other Dr. Michael Baird. For his testimony, Dr. Hausman even personally visited the Life Code's labs, concluding that the DNA testing that occurred there matched the consistency and quality of DNA tests conducted in academic labs across the globe. Prosecutor Berry was able to elicit testimony on the history of the collection of genetic material the methods of separating genetic material from DNA, and the technique of comparing genetic strands. Although these were brilliant scientists, their strong affiliations with life codes raised questions of financial motive and corporate gain. Defense attorney Hal Urig fought to exclude this evidence on the basis that DNA testing was unproven and that life codes, the only company performing DNA typing, was trying to profit by increasing the market for such tests, and therefore they were biased in favor of finding connections. He pointed out that nobody actually saw the process and that the statistics were not believable. Basically, Cath, he was doing the vibe where, hey, there's all these gurus behind the scenes making this scientific magic, and it's so sophisticated that attorneys can't actually refute it. So how do we know it occurs? It's like the modern day version of snake oil salesman. That's exactly how he was playing it. But for all of his arguments, the defense attorney could not find a single scientist who would testify against the theory, methods, or interpretation relating to the DNA evidence.
2: That's fascinating considering this is the very first case.
1: I know. Kathy, I totally agree with you, but I read a bunch of articles where the MIT biologist, Dr. Hausman, was sort of the best of the best of the best. And everyone kind of said, hey, if Hausman's saying it, it's true, because apparently he was beyond ethical reproach. Judge Ron Powell ruled in favor of the prosecution and the admissibility of DNA evidence.
2: Trial in the Andrews case involving victim Nancy Hodge began in mid-October 1987. According to an article in the Orlando Sentinel by journalist Roger Roy, Nancy Hodge took the stand and identified Andrews as her rapist. The defense did their best to impeach her testimony due to the stress of the situation, the darkness of the room, and the very brief look she got of him. The defense brought up two witnesses, Andrew's girlfriend and sister, who testified that he was home on the evening of the rape and therefore could not have committed it. On October 21st, 1987, prosecutors presented their DNA evidence. The same doctors at the evidentiary hearing testified at trial. Jurors heard this strange scientific evidence about chemically extracting genetic material from certain parts of DNA molecules found in blood and semen and comparing them. They heard Dr. Baird testify In my opinion, the semen donor was Tommy Lee Andrews. Defense attorneys Hal Ubrig, Ken Cotter, and James Valerino raised questions about the reality that the science could really pinpoint just one possible attacker. Prosecutor Tim Berry wanted the jury to hear that the likelihood of two people sharing the same genetic code was 1 in 10 billion. And, Kath, it was reported that defense counsel challenged him on these statistics because the figure presented the 10 billion was actually greater than the Earth's population at that time. The judge ruled that the prosecutor did not properly present expert witness testimony on the statistical data and the jury was not allowed to hear it. Prosecutor Barry later told a journalist that he withdrew the statement out of fear it would not stand up on appeal because the statistics were based on samplings from 500 individuals.
1: To the jury, defense attorneys argued that the DNA testimony was unproven and untested, but they admitted to the jurors that they could not get any expert to say so. The jury foreman said that the debate about whether the testing was accurate was a major point of contention. He said, we heard the witnesses say that this is consistent with, this is similar to, but we never heard them say, this DNA absolutely came from him. The foreman said the test does not compare the entire DNA molecule, but rather a tiny fraction, and jurors didn't know whether identical small fragments might be found in samples of different people. Judge Powell declared a mistrial after the six-person jury deliberated for five hours and told him they could not reach a verdict.
2: That seems like an awful short amount of time. I felt
1: like it was a short amount of time as well. I was not impressed by the five hours. And so the prosecutor, Tim Berry, was floored that they could not agree. In addition to the problems with using the DNA, the jury foreman said he believed the victim, but some jurors expressed concern that she might not have gotten a good look at him. And remember, Kathy, the testimony was that she saw him for six seconds, approximately. The foreman even said, I could say that I think it's probable that this is the man who committed this crime, but that's not what I was told to do. I really like that statement. I do, too, because he's talking about reasonable doubt.
2: And also not putting your own biases into what you're seeing at trial.
1: You're right. I believe this is the guy, probably. However, they didn't prove it. Right. And so what's interesting, Kath, is that when they talk about testing the entire DNA strand, what jurors didn't realize was because they weren't allowed to hear the probability, you know, the one in 10 billion or whatever it was a prosecutor wanted to present to them, they didn't understand the statistical anomaly of actually having a hit. I want to say, and I don't even know if it was known at the time, but what is it like 99% of our DNA is similar to those of our neighbors, but it's the, and I'm sure I'm massacring the stats a little bit, but it's like 1% of our DNA is unique and different. And it's from those unique portions that scientists pull strands and compare. But all of that was not explained to this jury. And so, like you said earlier, it seemed like voodoo.
2: I'm not sure all of that could have been explained to the jury at the time. Right. You know, this is the first time there was no CSI. There's none of this stuff that would have had people going, oh, forensic science. I get that. Right.
1: And how do you pull a statistic like that from a population sample of 500? They can do their statistical thing, but it's still confusing.
2: Despite the mistrial, the prosecution was determined to try Nancy Hodge's case again. In the meantime, in November of 1987, just three weeks after the hung jury, Prosecutor Jeff Ashton started trial against Andrews on Karen Monroe's rape. Karen Monroe, who was believed to be the attacker's last victim, testified about her experience and admitted that she did not see her attacker and could not identify him. However, a fingerprint expert took the stand and testified that two of the prints lifted from her children's bedroom window screen matched Andrews' right index and middle fingers, connecting Andrews to the victim's home. Over objection, the state once again presented evidence linking Andrews to the crime based on his genetic fingerprint. The doctors testified they compared the defendant's blood with the victim's blood, as well as semen taken from the victim shortly after the attack. Having learned from the experience of his colleague, Prosecutor Ashton prepared in advance for questions regarding the admissibility of statistical evidence regarding DNA typing. He knew the jury needed to hear about the uniqueness of the data. And once again, defense attorneys could not find anyone to testify against the DNA based evidence. In the trial, defense attorney Urig brought up the important issue of human error and questioned how results from life codes could be trusted when no one had witnessed the actual process. On November 6, 1987, history was made. According to an article by Pat Meisel in the Tampa Bay Times, the now 24-year-old warehouse supervisor who once played football for Iowa State was convicted and sentenced to 22 years in prison. The Karen Monroe case was the first successful prosecution in U.S. history in which a defendant was identified by scientists from DNA molecules. It was immediately understood that if the evidence held up on appeal and became accepted in courts, it promised to revolutionize forensic science and criminal law. Prosecutor Ashton was quoted as saying, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing for prosecutors and for defense attorneys. It's a truth finding tool. Andrew's defense attorney, James Valerino, said, if it turns out to be for real, it will totally change the face of criminal law.
1: Months later, Andrews was retried on Nancy Hodge's case and found guilty of rape, aggravated battery, and burglary and sentenced to an additional 78 years in prison. Andrews' sentence was eventually reduced due to incorrect sentencing calculations. On appeal, the trial court's admissibility of DNA evidence was upheld. The court said, Summarizing Dr. Hausman's testimony, it appears that DNA print identification is established by several well-accepted scientific principles. DNA, a molecule that carries the body's genetic information, is contained in every living organism and every cell which has a nucleus. The configuration of the DNA is different in every individual with the exception of identical twins. The court went on to say that Dr. Hausman stated that at the time of trial, The procedure had been in existence for 10 years and enabled scientists to cut genetic strands at predetermined locations and compare the DNA structure of the different individuals. He also stated that this was routinely used in such areas as the diagnosis, treatment, and study of genetically inherited diseases.
2: Tommy Lee Andrews served 24 years in prison. According to Greg Fox of WESH2 News, Andrews never accepted responsibility for the rapes. In 2012, just before he was set to complete his felony sentence, the state of Florida held a jury trial to determine if he was a sexually violent predator. Now, Kath, under Florida law, and I believe many states have similar laws, Uh a person can be civilly committed as a sexually violent predator if that person has exhibited a pattern of violent sexual behavior and had a mental condition or abnormality that would make this person likely to continue engaging in sexually violent criminal behavior if they were not confined to a secure facility for long term control, care and treatment. Because this is not a voluntary commitment, it does require a due process hearing and presentation of the evidence. So get this, Kath, Andrews' attorney in this commitment hearing was himself. Oh. Yes. He thought, I'm going to get out of having to be committed if I represent myself at trial. That alone should have had him committed. Because Andrews was representing himself, he cross-examined four of his rape victims who wanted him civilly committed. Not all of these rape cases were actually prosecuted. One of the jurors reportedly fainted during one victim's description of her attack. And Andrews' blushing bride, to whom he was married in 2011 while in prison, was his only witness who testified to his extraordinary character. Despite this, Andrews was found likely to reoffend and at the age of 49 was civilly committed to Florida Civil Commitment Center for Violent Sexual Predators. In August of 2021, the victims returned to court for another trial on the same issue when Andrews was trying to be released. The court had to again decide if Andrews was likely to reoffend. After a three day bench trial, Judge Letitia Marquez signed his release on August 27, 2021. She said it is, quote, the state's responsibility to prove by clear and convincing evidence that he is currently likely to commit an act of sexual violence if released. The state has not met its burden, end quote. On October 31st of that year, Happy Halloween. Yeah. Tommy Lee Andrews walked out of the
1: Florida Civil Commitment Center after having been held there for nine years. Since 1989, there have been at least 375 DNA exonerations. There are over 20 million DNA samples in the FBI's database, likely because all 50 states have adopted mandatory DNA collection for certain types of crimes. Kath, I understand that all of the states have DNA collection for sexually related crimes. Some states have it for other serious crimes. And there are some states that even have it for misdemeanors today, one of the most remarkable advancements in DNA testing is that identification can be revealed with microscopic traces, not the large stains that were required more than three decades ago. Sweat, saliva, and skin cells can all be used to make a match now. DNA science is now part of our culture, hammered home with our favorite crime dramas and crime podcasts.
2: (laughs) This is your favorite one.
1: You're welcome. (laughs) jurors not only trust it, but they also expect it. And convictions based on genetic evidence are now routine. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the story as much as we enjoyed telling it.
2: (laughs) Rate us, review us, Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.
1: Only five stars are allowed. Remember that.
2: (laughs)